Hello everybody, this is Nate Sheets with Cognitive Supports and Order Behavior Consultation. Welcome to the It's a Brain Thing podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode, which is an interview. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that we will be doing a book club of Beyond Behaviors. So if you have not already ordered that book, you'll find a link in the show notes. You can also find it at a lot of major retailers, but it's Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. I'm really excited to go through that with you. A lot of you have reached out to me and told me that you're excited, so that will be great. And just to remind people, the book is not about fetal alcohol specifically. It is about, well, it's about a lot of things, but essentially about developmental processes and trauma and dysregulation and sensory stuff. So it's all that kind of stuff, but it is really, you know, to me, a big piece of what is important when supporting somebody with a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, because they're just much more likely to to be relevant to what's in the book, especially in terms of trauma or sensory dysregulation and all those things. So I am excited to introduce you guys to Dr. Indre Viscontis. She is a podcaster as well. She hosts Cadence, which is a podcast about how music affects our brains, our lives, and our communities. She's also the co-host of Inquiring Minds, which is one of my favorite podcasts. I've listened to it for many years, and they talk about a lot of different scientific subjects and kind of what's going on in current research and events and how it all links to science. Um, I'm a a big science lover, in case you couldn't tell already, and so this is one of my podcasts that just makes me feel happy and, and learning and it's just really easily communicated. I love it. Dr. Viscontis is a professor of sciences and humanities at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, and she's also an associate professor of psychology at the University of San Francisco. She has a series of lectures on the Great Courses, which is a great website that has all these lectures about really, I mean, so many different things. If you're into lecture style, they have visual as well as just audio. I have several of them, and she actually has some courses on there. One One is called Brain Myths Exploded, and the other is called 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. So, concepts. (laughs) So, if you enjoy science, definitely give that a chance if you enjoy our interview and want to hear more about what she has to say. And also in October, The Great Courses will be releasing another one of her lectures called How Technology Shapes Us, or something similar to that. So, I'm going to put a link to her current lectures in the show notes. Indra is also an opera singer. She's performed and directed in several different operas and I wanted to talk to her today about music and neuroscience and ironically it was in one of my typical ADHD distraction modes where I you know just went to her website found her information and sent her an email and she responded and said she would do an interview and I was amazed so I'm really excited especially since I have been learning from her for such a long time and I'm hoping that you guys will learn from her too. I also wanted something different for everybody because we're in the middle of COVID. We're getting ready for a pretty intense series on a lot of stuff related to trauma and I just wanted to take a break from all of that, but still keep it brain-based. And you're, you're going to find that there's several different conversations that happen within this interview. We start off, I would say, more on a neurotypical cognitive skill front, and then we we bring it a little bit more to the disability side of it. And it, I think it goes really good. We talked about a lot of different skills, especially how they relate to music. So if you're a music lover, or you've played piano, or you, you've sung, or you've studied other instruments, hopefully you'll get something out of that as well. 
Some of today's podcast might be a little technical in certain areas, but I still think that we can find it relevant and interesting, not only thinking about our kids' brain, which I'm always encouraging us to do, but also just in thinking about how our own brain works, which is a lot of what drives my interest in all of this is it's it's just thinking about how people work. And so again, as the podcast goes along, we're going to talk more about disability and executive functioning struggles, and I'll even get to introduce a little bit of my approach to Dr. Viscontis. Um, and at times you might hear that she's skeptical or wanting to hash out some of what I assert to her, and that's absolutely what I would expect a scientist to do, and what I would be doing, honestly, if somebody was setting something off that went against my own paradigm and set off my skepticism. So um, I think being skeptical is a good thing, so that was totally good to kind of work through that. And it was just reaffirming as well to, to talk to an expert about something and just be able to speak her language, which is why it might get technical at some point, because I, I don't really know where the technical is. But I also tend to be pretty technical in the podcast anyway. So I hope you're all along for the ride. Anyway, just remember that even though she's using a lot of our neuro language, the reality is that her application of these concepts and what I do don't really overlap directly. So I just want us to remember that. And when she talks about certain skills or ways that we gain knowledge, and how our brains work, you might think, well, that doesn't work for my kid. And you're, you're probably right when we're talking about the context of FASD. But again, there are so many helpful things that are relevant, including what she had to say about attention and practicing and motor and knowledge integration and sequences of learning, task switching, and how we make progress. So we're going to talk about all of that, and I hope you find it interesting. Let me know what you think, and stay safe out there, everyone. Well, thank you so much for joining us. First of all, uh, one of the things that I really want parents to understand, and it's hard for me to put this into words, so I think after today's interview, I'll be able to do this, but when it comes to challenging behaviors, I really focus on what do we know about how this kid's brain works and uh, you know, what are demands of the kid. And because I work with developmental disability, obviously we know that there's some cognitive skill struggles. So music is a really good way to talk about all these skills and in terms of how they're playing out in everyday life, moment by moment by moment. So I'm really excited to get your input. And so I guess my first question to you is, can you describe to us what attention is, our attention span on that neuroscience level and like what 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 is that involved uh, in terms of how it's developed and how we use it yeah so i mean it sounds like a really simple question and i will tell you that like <laughs> in his principles of psychology which is kind of a bible for most of us experimental psychologists william james back in 1898 said everyone knows what attention is and then after studying it for 100 years like hal paschler is an attention researcher basically came out and said nobody knows what attention is <laughs> and right. you know the truth is is that it, it it really depends on how you define it i think we kind of understand and intuitively that it's something to do with how we focus our consciousness or what it is that we are able to um, sense and react to consciously. And um, so, you know, I, I think that I like to think of it, of it more as kind of dividing it up into the way that you're using it and really talking about what are the things that are not working the way you would want them to. So, um, for example, when I think about what are some of the struggles with like, you know, kids in school, a lot of it is going to be, well, how much time can they spend literally physically sitting without moving, uh, which is, you mm -hmm. know, and then if they're able to do that, how long can they actually focus on the task at hand before they get distracted? And then if they get right. distracted, how quickly can they return to the task, if at all? Um, and I, you know, I think the answer to each of those questions is going to be different depending on the child. And 
you know, at the top of the show, you kind of mentioned this this notion of behavioral and, um, you know, p- kids with disabilities or differences. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think this is what we're all really struggling with right now is, you know, a, we're getting much better at recognizing that some struggles that kids have have to do with some organic cause in their brain or something mm-hmm. that we can actually help them with um, right. as opposed to just sort of struggles that we all have to go through, you know, one for one way or another but you know it's, it's like such a spectrum right so absolutely yeah attention is no different at what point is it pathological quote unquote and i you know i think that i think that the the nice thing is is that as we're looking at interventions and as we are um seeing or observing across children some similar issues struggles behaviors and then we figure out like what kinds of treatments or interventions might be effective at reducing, you know, if this is causing them suffering or anxiety or, or somehow you know, right. leading to struggle, then, then, you know, that's really great. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's a really interesting question. For me, attention really is about how you're using it. Is it that you're able to, and there's a, a whole other set of things that are related, which is memory, right? Like, so mm-hmm. you might say, well, you know, my child doesn't look me in the eye when I speak to them, um, but then they go and do what I ask them to do or it might be but then they don't go and do what I asked them to do so the question is did they not understand what you asked them were they not quote-unquote paying attention do they not remember right like these failures to do what you asked them to do can happen for a number of reasons oh yeah absolutely when you're practicing a piece because you're a musician Mm -hmm. um so you're an opera singer first of all do you also play instruments well, so I play rudimentary piano, but, you know. <laughs> okay, cool. No, that's fine. And, yeah. and I've just picked up the piano, so that's a big context okay, that I'll great. keep mentioning today. Because um, I played for several years, but now I have to unlearn a bunch of stuff. And I'll mm-hmm. ask you about that. But when, let's say you're practicing a piece. So let's let's talk about your brain. Mm-hmm. Because, like, for me, I, ha- I, had, I have ADHD, and now I'm medicated, but that's very recent. And so one of the good things is in terms of essentially filtering situations through cognitive skills, I can really look at my brain, how it seems to be different now, at least from my perspective, perception, which of course mm-hmm. can be flawed. But when I'm singing a song, like just, and I'm just an amateur singer, but a big problem for me is I can't focus and it's always a, has been a problem. And so what about you when you're seeing, and I know those songs get long. I mean, do you, are you wandering? Are you bringing it back? Like what's going on in your brain? Yeah. So again, I, I would, I would want to sort of learn more about what it is that you are struggling to focus on. Um, because I actually think that like, it, you know, if you're performing in front of an audience, you actually don't, you know, you don't want to be judging yourself at the same time. So what you want to be doing is staying in the present moment without actually, you know, it's almost like meditating where, you know, you're kind of watching your thoughts go by, but you're not manipulating them in a sense. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So tell me what you think that is, um, what, what do you, what makes you think that you don't, can't focus or can't well, maintain focus? I mean, I can. And and again, I'm talking moment to Mm -hmm. moment. So Mm -hmm. usually if I'm singing, it's playing out in, I forget, it seems Mm -hmm. like I'm forgetting lyrics. But I think what the issue is for me is I'm not forgetting them. I'm just not, my mind wanders um, pretty easily. And my ADHD is definitely like distraction based. So I can hold Uh my attention if there's no distractions. But then sometimes my thoughts are distractions. And I'll have like some like when I'm doing my exercises and going up the scale and then I have to go back down, I might start thinking of something random and I'm not supposed to be looking at my hands because you're so, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but then, you know, I have to mm-hmm. look at my, so I can fix it by looking at my hands, um, but then I'm not supposed to be doing that. So when I look away, that's when all the thought distractions come up. 
Yeah. So I think there's a number of things going on and something that, you know, I think a, a lot of musicians struggle with regardless of whether they have an ADHD diagnosis, which is the extent to which you have to both be in the moment performing, but also yeah. monitoring the situation to make sure that if things go awry, if you suddenly find yourself off key, if you can't remember the lyrics to the next verse, like you have to get yourself on track. So you can't be completely, you know, in the in the zone unless this is something that you've practiced you know, to the point where you can't get it wrong, right? Absolutely. So I think that, um, so then the question is, so what are those things that, what are the kinds of distracting thoughts that um, are sort of leading you astray? And I think this is one of the reasons why I, you know, I sort of punted your attention question back at you because <laughs> yeah, I was like, there's oh, all these question. different layers, right? So like, for example, it could be that you are distracted by a physical sensation, which I often get um, when I'm singing mm. and all of a sudden somebody doesn't quite feel right or actually feels really good and I want to add more air or I want to add, you know, something... So I get distracted by what it feels like physically, um, and that takes me out of like the emotion that I'm trying to express. Um, or I get distracted about worrying about the future, like um, is the high note at the end of the phrase going to be there for me? Um, mm, am I yeah. setting it up correctly? You know, and then or or then it becomes like the judge in my head, like oh, you know, how's the audience reacting? Am I am I being? And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, now I'm out. Now I'm thinking about thinking, and so I'm not yeah. in the uh. moment. Get back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think each of these different mind wandering problems are something that can happen spontaneously, but also they have different solutions, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. I often advocate for uh, musicians in particular to develop a growth mindset when it comes to their performances, um, such that they don't, even if they find themselves going awry and they find themselves like not doing the things they want to do, it's not, it does, they don't like feel shame because it means that they're not worthwhile. <laughs> Right. It just mm -hmm. means that, OK, here's a setback in the moment and I will learn from it and next time I'll be better. Um, so that takes away a lot of the judging, because then what you can do is say, look, I don't the, the, the judge is not necessary in the moment um, because I'll always have a chance to do this piece again. Like, let me just do the piece and then I can go back and evaluate yeah. it. Um, you know, in terms of the physical sensation, too, I think that we can learn to um, be present, but not be distracted by it if that makes sense so you know again it's it's a little bit like the the mindfulness meditation practice of like notice it but then let it go without judgment mm -hmm. you know and then when it comes to other things like well forgetting the words or not you know losing your place I mean I think a lot of that too has to do with your um, motivation in the moment for why you're actually practicing or, or performing this piece right so if you're practicing this piece and it's like you know it's that's Practice, I will say to you, like, I mean, I, I work with um, music students at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. These are like mm -hmm. very highly skilled musicians that have spent a lot of time and money developing their craft. And they're they're all they all are aspiring to be professional musicians. So to do this for the rest of their lives and all of them, almost all of them struggle with just getting enough and good enough practice in like like no one like I, I teach this class called you know training the musical brain which is like trying to help them develop more effective practice strategies and I developed this class because most people don't know how to practice even if they are quote-unquote professional musicians because they haven't spent enough kind of time breaking it down into its different components figuring out that these different components actually thrive under different practice conditions that you mm -hmm. can be strategic that you know you have yeah. to vary your practice like you know playing the scales the same way every single morning while well, that might yep. be fun but it's not getting you any better at playing those scales exactly. <laughs> like once yep. you can do it mindlessly you're not learning anymore 
And that's one of the things that I've been doing differently this time mm. is instead of this like brute force method of sitting down, starting at the beginning, I've been watching like YouTube videos mm -hmm. I've been, and, and people are telling me, here's how you practice. So all of those kind of suggestions, I definitely have been doing it differently. And I, I think I'm seeing great results. And, th and that also kind of leads me to linking our motor to our learning. Be and because I don't really necessarily focus on that a lot in my work, but mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can explain how, especially with music, um, we, we learn the information and then it gets kind of taught to our body and easier and easier. What's going on there? Yeah. So a lot of people call this muscle memory and they often think of it as actually residing in their muscles because sometimes it feels as if your muscles are doing it without your brain driving oh, yeah. the ship. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And that's actually where you want to be ultimately because you want to be using your conscious brain to kind of do other things like either, you know, do something creative in the moment or monitor whether, you know, the rest of your players are coming in at the right time or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. You don't want to be thinking about the fingering or like right. the kind of technical aspects of what it is that you're doing and in terms of moving your muscles. But the truth is, is that obviously all that happens in your brain, right? Your muscles actually don't have any memory, um, but it's a part of your brain that is not available to you consciously. So it's the difference between, you know, knowing that a bicycle has two wheels and two pedals and a handle, set of handlebars and knowing how to ride a bicycle, right? Mm. So you can read about riding a bicycle you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And then when you get on the bicycle, you can still not know how to do it, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because you're, it's not quote unquote in your muscles. And that is because there, there are a number of circuits in your brain that coordinate your muscles, but they work on feedback. So they essentially have, there are these loops. So they are tied to what it feels like, but also, you know, how sort of a, there, there's, there's cortical or, you know, more conscious ways in which you can um, give it feedback. But the truth is, is that it's, it's learning by doing, uh, right? So learning mm -hmm. how versus learning that. Um, and, and so the problem with teaching your muscles how to do something is that even if you know consciously how to do it, it's a different memory system. And in fact, it can interfere. It can, it can compete for resources. Mm. So, you know, if you're playing the piano, for example, in a concert and you start thinking about the fingering, that, act that actually can make you screw up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, whereas like if you just let it go and are thinking about the music or the interpretation or the story, whatever, like your fingers just know what they're doing. And, and so that's because we have the system that can override the automatic motor learning system so that if, you know, know someone threw something at you you could stop playing the piano and bat it away yeah <laughs> right like you can react um so can i can i break that down and ask you for, about that so sure we are we're doing something and it's essentially motor memory so you know we're kind of cruising along somebody throws a ball at us and mm -hmm. we react at what point is the reaction subconscious visceral survival and at what point is it executive functioning or is it is that even a good question to ask well, I think it depends on how threatening the thing is to you, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's something that is physically coming at you, usually it's going to be a reflexive action. And so it's going to be subconscious. Um, but if it's something more subtle, like you're playing the piano and you're playing a duet with a violinist and suddenly the violinist skips uh, three measures ahead, oh, that's violinists. not threatening to you, <laughs> right? <laughs> but like as a pianist, you'd be like, oh, yeah. hang on a minute. I need to like, you know, figure out how we're going to catch up with each other. So your, your attention... 
your attention notes it and then kind of you're planning and problem solving quickly snap something together. Exactly. And exactly. So, so let me ask you about this because this is, again, where I want to help people understand that these how we plan most we don't even I, I have like an inner voice that's really loud and I know that varies, but I'm not walking myself through a lot of stuff like when I'm driving my car mm-hmm. and I come across a, a, a red light, I'm not saying, oh, time to stop. I just kind of do mm-hmm. it and things mm-hmm. snap together. And unless it's a really novel or weird situation, I'm not using kind of that walking through. So what's going on there? What, what's a, maybe a better word than snapping together? Mm-hmm. Um, and do you agree that that's kind of a complicated process, even if it feels easy a lot of the time? Absolutely. And what you're describing with the driving is actually something that is, is quite well explained with this kind of three-stage motor learning model, hmm. where in the beginning, um, in the first stage, you're really using your consciousness a lot and your, your attention and effort. So like, let's say you're learning to drive a car and let's say, you know, I don't know if this is even relevant today, but it's a stick shift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> so now you need to like really think about like, do I put the clutch down first and then change gears? Or like, so in this beginning clumsy stage, you have to think about every single action before you do it. And then you have to tell your body to do it. Yep. And um, so, you know, it, it's this jerky uh, kind of driving and you have to, it's very effortful. And so like, you know, don't talk to anybody if you're <laughs> in the car with them and they're just learning how to drive. Right. Um, then you get to the kind of associative stage where now you no longer have to think about whether you're putting the clutch down before you shift gears, but you need to think about things like well should I shift from you know four to two or should I shift from like you know four to three like you know you're sort of making these bigger decisions but these these smaller sequences of actions have been automated so you don't have to think about those things um, and then finally, you get to the autonomous stage where you don't no longer have to think about any of these sequences of actions. And, and here now you can get into the situation where like you get in the car and you drive and you're planning on going to the grocery store, but you end up at work <laughs> and because <laughs> yeah. your mind wandered. And you, right. Yeah. So you think, well, goodness, was I not conscious this entire time? Like I got somewhere where I was not planning to go. But the truth is, is that that's been such an automated habit set of sequences that your brain is doing it, you know, without a lot of conscious input. Right. Um, although it's not, you know, you weren't a zombie during that period of time. You were just thinking about something else. And so your, your body was kind of on autopilot. So again, I th- so I think that the answer to your question is it depends on how well practiced the task is. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like, so how you get from one stage to another is a little bit different depending on the skill involved, but generally it means going from conscious, effortful, thinking about every moment to like slowly chunking together sequences of actions, practicing them, and then, you know, being able to practice them in a variety of environments so that, you know, you can, you can automatically make little changes if you need to, um, Mm -hmm. like slow down if suddenly somebody in a bicycle drive, you know, goes in front of your car automatically. So let's talk, this is kind of along these lines. I really, I start from like attention and build up in a specific way, kind of like Dr. Barkley, who wrote Executive Functions, How They Evolved. I don't know if you've ever read his stuff, Mm -mm. but he's pretty prominent, especially like in ADHD Mm -hmm. literature. Mm -hmm. When I'm working on it on a behavioral level, I am telling parents it's not just transitioning from one environment to another which it is you know a kid coming home from school that can be a tough transition but even how we shift our thoughts would you agree with that is there a different it should transitioning be called something different like shifting thoughts or and do you have any other insights just in general about that skill yeah so i mean transitioning is something that i think is really hard for a lot of kids like yep. my own six-year-old i find is really challenging for him 
And, um, you know, I think that it's challenging for me, too, in the sense that sometimes I get a couple hours uh, of work in and then I have to go back to being a parent. And it's it's really hard for me not to think about work anymore and, and be fully present now as a parent to him, especially if there's something that's kind of high stakes or it feels unfinished or something like that to do with work. This is different from like, I'm going to finish cooking dinner and now I'm going to go sit down and watch an, uh, a Netflix movie or whatever. It's pretty easy to transition and not think about the dinner anymore. <laughs> so these, what, I, what I'm referring to now is task switching and there are different costs that we pay for task switching. So, you know, we think even about like the, this whole idea of multitasking, mm-hmm. you know, we often think that now that we all have smartphones or most of us do, and, you know, we, we have media going on in background all the time that we're pretty good at multitasking. We can do more than one thing at once. But the truth is, is that we're not really good at multitasking. No. In fact, our brains just are switching between tasks yep. and we pay different costs for different types of switches. And so I like to divide switching costs into two different bins. One is just the physical cost of switching from one thing to another. So if it's a matter of like turning your head and then just turning your attention to something else, that cost is usually pretty small. It's usually pretty quick. It's 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 not the one that is most troublesome. The one that is more troublesome is the kind of rumination that continues in the next task. This is the kind of task switching cost that stays with you even when you think you are now focused on the other task. So we started this Mm -hmm. discussion with attention. I mean, here we are again talking about the situation in which now I'm playing with my son, we're playing Legos, but part of my mind is like, did I write that email too abruptly? Was it too brusque? You know, is the person going to, you know, be offended? And, you know, Mm -hmm. my son sees me and he's like, you're not paying attention to me. You're not not fully (laughs) engaged in the Legos. And that's because I'm paying this cost uh, of switching, which includes these ruminating thoughts. And tasks that are, when we go from a task that is easier to a task that is harder, a task that we don't want to do, right? So um, if, if we go from a task that we do want to do to a task we don't want to do, it's hard to like focus on the task that we don't want to do, mm-hmm. right? Because we often have these intrusive thoughts. Or if we go from a task where, yeah, we feel like there's some unfinished business or it has some high emotional stake, it's hard to turn that off too. So I think that that's... Yeah. You know, when it comes to task switching for kids, you know, I think some some kinds of tasks are much more difficult for children than they are for adults for a number of reasons. The 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 probably you know one of the significant ones being that they are learning things like social interactions and and these things are very high stakes for them. You know, in terms yeah. of their own ego, in terms of their the way that they're forming their identity. So then asking them where their executive functioning development is at. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So then asking them to switch to another task and just leave a leave aside all the things that they were worried and thinking and working hard on a minute ago can be really hard uh and 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 that can be an aversive state so they don't want to do it (laughs) right because they're just like but wait a minute i just like put all this energy and effort and everything into into getting into what i'm into now and now you want me to leave that behind and like start this whole other journey like that's really hard and 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 what we talk about you know normally on this podcast is they're not saying that to you they're not saying i'm sorry but i'm struggling transitioning they're saying i don't want to like they're giving you these words that indicate that they're being intentional about it but we can bring it back to well maybe this is a transitioning or shifting issue Mm -hmm. and be proactive about it more but also in the moment remembering that can help us try to move forward or, or they even say uh, i can't you know it's like okay put your right. shoes on we're gonna go outside i can't put my shoes on <laughs> you think what right, you yeah. know, how can you not know how to put your shoes on you know what i mean like i've seen you put your shoes mm-hmm. on you can totally but the, but what they're trying to tell you is that 
I'm resisting the fact that, you know, I this 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 task switching is is a challenge for me. Well, I mean, in my audience, we we usually don't get I can'ts because the, the kind of behaviors we deal with are definitely what we call I won'ts. Mm, and so okay. I, we always try we try we always say an I won't often means I can't, but it right. just looks like that I won't. Um, right, but yeah, right. if they say I can't, that's at least, you know, something that you can try to problem solve for. Um, yeah, I guess and, I did, and, that's what my son says. When, when he really means I won't, he just says, like, I can't because he knows then I'll come and try to help him. <laughs> oh, well, then I would I would encourage you maybe to assume that it is an I can't. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah that's the whole that, approach. Okay, I mean, like, but then he's done it before. So why can't he do it in this moment? <laughs> Oh, well, you should listen to a few back episodes. Well, we have, and we have, we have answers. Well, and one reason is executive functioning. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, a certain ability. And when you have trauma and developmental disability and mental health and however many other things, you know, they're starting off with kind of less fuel than we have. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you have, they might have fuel on some day and then on another day, we're asking them to do the same task, but it's just at a different time where it's just a a difference. They've done a lot of regulation already that day Mm -hmm. and it sends them into meltdown, you know, and again, I'm Mm -hmm. talking about very specific population here. So, yeah, but um, I I think that's true for, you know, even, even when we, if we go back to this idea of keeping focus and practice, you know, I think sometimes mm -hmm. we do have an unreasonable expectation that no matter where we schedule our practice session we're going to have the same amount of like you know uh kind of reserve available to get us through this Absolutely. very difficult work of of practice which is just really yeah. challenging difficult work um, and, and then the term unreasonable expectation is is one that i use all the time and most often the adult doesn't realize they have an unreasonable expectation mm-hmm. so that's the lens change you know on this end of the podcast where we are that we're constantly trying to, to do and get other systems um you know kids with developmental disabilities have to go through public schools that are not equipped to work with them or their mm-hmm. brain or their behaviors and so trying to get all those systems to understand here is how this particular kiddo's brain works mm-hmm. um so i want to ask you too because I, I I don't like to use the term motivation because mm-hmm. that's very psychological and mm-hmm. it, you know I, you ask different people and they'll give you different answers. Mm-hmm. It is there a purely neuroscience, purely dry explanation that you would have for motivation, or does it, it, does there have to be a psychological kind of component to that? Yeah, so I mean, I I I, I think it has to have a psychological psychological component to it, but that's because I don't think the brain is at all interesting if you separate it from behavior. <laughs> And if you separate it from the psychology. So to me, you know, it's like if you don't understand the behavior or you don't you don't even have the right question psychologically, then knowing what the brain is doing is giving you no interesting, no meaningful information. Um, that's, that's the perspective where I come from. Like, okay, so I told you, well, you know, motivation, you're not motivated. And so you're seeing less uh, activity in your, you know, limbic system. Like that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. anything to you unless you understand, you know, what, what, what we're talking about. And so I, but I do like this idea of motivated behaviors uh, because it captures the fact that we have several different kind of wired systems in our brains um, that are designed evolutionarily to get us, keep us alive and reproducing. Um, And we have a whole series of systems that make sure that we do these behaviors. So for example, um, you know, the sort of seat of motivated behaviors in the brain is is the hypothalamus. It's a series of of nuclei or collections of cells, each with, you know, a somewhat different set of responsibilities. But basically, one of the things that it does is it regulates the amount of hormones in blood and and circulating in our brains. So that Mm. if your, your brain registers the fact that 
you know, you're running low on water, uh, it will send out hormones that make you feel thirsty, which will then mm-hmm. motivate you to seek out uh, water that, you know, will replenish you. And so if you think about mo- behaviors in, in that way, you can, I, I think that that starts to give you an under- a deeper understanding of, of motivation. And so we, so we have these systems that are in place. When we then ask ourselves to um, be internally motivated to go and do something, we're essentially asking this brain system that is designed to sort of shape our behavior so that we are able to survive and reproduce, to do something that really it maybe wasn't entirely built for so we have to Mm -hmm. give it reasons for why (laughs) this is something that we we want to seek this out so and and yet we see that there is this like what makes us different this is like one of the okay i'm gonna nerd out just for a tiny bit um there's this like old series of studies from the 1950s by Olden Milner, where they basically implanted an electrode into the nucleus accumbens of rodents. This is the part of the air of the brain that we think of as kind of the pleasure center, um, although mm. that's not quite right. But basically right. what they did is that they taught these rats uh, to push a lever in order to get electrical stimulation in this area of the brain, the nucleus accumbens. And the rats would, would push the lever all day long. Like they would do it to exhaustion. They would run over an electrified grid in order to push that lever, which they would not do if they were starving and there was food on the other side or if there was a willing mate on the other side so like this was Hmm. incredibly motivating but the interesting thing so you you think oh it must give them so much pleasure and it help us helps us understand why people get addicted to because we also know the nucleus accumbens is part of the dopamine pathway you know people think Hmm. of it as a pleasure chemical so okay so we know like this is why cocaine which mimics dopamine is so addictive blah 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 but the truth is is that we don't know if these rats were actually pressing lever because it felt good or because they right. just couldn't help not wanting to press the lever if they were just really highly motivated. And we as human beings, uh, you would think like, okay, so why don't why aren't we all just sitting in vats with uh, an electrode and our nucleus accumbens and pushing a lever all day long? Because we could, you know, essentially do that for ourselves. And if it was like the most pleasurable thing in the world, like why aren't we all doing that? And the answer is that we satiate. We also there's something about meaning in life uh, that gives us a different kind of pleasure. Um, and, and that's why in some ways I, I think of the dopamine as a kind of salience chemical because, you know, as opposed to just a pleasure chemical. But the underlying thing that I want to say here is that what motivates us in the long term is often how we interpret the situation as being meaningful to us. And mm-hmm. how that um, and what that means to us is going to be very individual, right? Depend depends on your values. Um, so even though you asked me to get super neuroscience, <laughs> but here I am like sending it back to you and being like, look, it's so psychological. Well, so you just said if we, you know, what it means to us, right? And that could also mm-hmm. have a big impact on our motivation. But to know what it means to us definitely takes a certain amount of cognitive skill and some executive functioning mm-hmm. to be reflective in a human way. And so then I guess if you're very young, you know, that's obviously going to impact, you know, your motivation or if there's other issues mm-hmm. going on. You know, so for example, when I say look at it through neuroscience, we know that people who have depression struggle with starting tasks and initiating tasks. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we can look. So I'm just curious in terms of and asking all the questions, do we know if what, if anything, depression does to the executive functioning part of the brain? You know, does it and and so just looking at it that way to see if there might be other solutions or like so, for example, I've recommended and it's not 
perfect by any means, but sometimes when we have a kiddo who's just not doing what like a chore that they know they should do, I'll tell the parents just start doing it with them and just do it like within their eyesight and see if seeing the action initiated actually gets them off the couch and joining you and helping you and hopefully connecting. Does any of that make sense? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. I, yeah. So, you know, talking about depression. So in depression, you know, that obviously there's a it's a spectrum there. there there's uh, people, ha- you know, range from mild to moderate to severe, you know, and, and so the brain basis is going to differ depending on, you know, how episodic it is, how severe it is, etc. But in general, I would say that um, we do know that that there does seem to be some, I don't even want to say that it's necessarily a ride, but there there is a, a change or there's a difference in the monoamine levels of which dopamine is one. Um, but serotonin usually is the one that people talk about because it's the one that most uh, antidepressants act on. Um, but the truth is, is that in, in depression, there is there does seem to be a kind of just lack of motivation in general, in part because the person just doesn't find things pleasurable anymore. So it's not necessarily that they feel sad. Mm-hmm. It's that things that used to make them feel good no longer just leave them feeling neutral. Mm-hmm. So when you take away the reward, um, then, you know, it's hard to find the motivation because our brains are wired in such a way that we are very much tied to there is a reward <laughs> once we reach the goal. Um, you know, when, when, when we are goal oriented, we are doing something because we think that ultimately it will lead to some kind of reward. Unless something's throwing that off, in which case depression, throw, the reward isn't gone. Exactly. It's just, we're not perceiving it the same way or, That's yeah. right. okay, cool. Yeah, exactly. And so it won't be as rewarding for us. So now why would you bother doing the thing that you don't want to do to begin with? Right. Um, but I, th- so, so I think that that's sort of a, a question of like, you know, what that reward should look like. I mean, ultimately, we all want rewards to be intrinsic and tied to like, you know, I want my kid to be nice to his sister, just because he's, you know, it's rewarding for him to think of himself as a kind person. Um, But sometimes I need to say to him, like, if you're nice to your sister, you will get this reward or make it more explicit as he's kind of learning and then hope that over time, you know, you can take away that kind of very tangible word. But that's, you know, that's, that that's, that's a hard thing. And it's not always, you know, effective. But I think that like, uh, you know, so, so I think we need to sort of think carefully about um, the role of rewards in, mm. in driving motivated behaviors, what those rewards should look like, you know, what the frequency of rewards should be, um, you know, and how we can then transition to getting the person to be internally motivated um, as opposed to, you know, just to do that, that thing for the reward. Yeah. And, and just because my audience, their flags are going up right now. So just to clarify, because mm-hmm. we're dealing my like clients that I work with, rewards don't work for them. And again, I bring it all I always bring it back to the skills because they're not constantly having that in their mind when the impulse to do a behavior or, you know, when a threat happens. There, all the clicking has to happen. And that's how we really break things down. Mm-hmm. So right. and punishments don't work. You know, you punish these kids over and over again, but they keep doing the same behaviors and the, the systems and places will keep on punishing, keep increasing it. But, you know, now we're really understanding that doesn't work for kids who've been through trauma or kids with disabilities and that kind of thing. Well, I, th- I mean, I think, I guess, you know, I, you know, you are much more of the expert on this than I am, but I guess I would then ask you, you know, is it the way that we are defining rewards in, in, in this population then? Because, you know, is it possible that for that individual, um, the kinds of rewards that might work in a person who is, you know, neurotypical or who doesn't have a history of trauma, like, are going to be different, um, you know, 
I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I still wonder, like, you know, how, what, what are the kinds of ways in which, like, can we put ourselves into the shoes of, of these kids and, and figure out why rewards don't work? Well, and that's that's exactly it. And ultimately, when you're dealing with disability, a big answer, not all the time, but is, is it's executive functioning. They don't have mm-hmm. to be nice to your sister, especially day in and day out through all these unique stressors and situations and, you know, how, mm-hmm. how being sick and, and sensory dysregulation that all takes, you know, a significant amount of skills that I often don't have. I can get pretty mm-hmm. snippy myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's kind of the approach that, that I take. Um, and, and one way we know, well, what does this person view as a reward is that in many cases, not always, because there, there's a wide variety of like intellectual disability within fetal alcohol, but you can, we can ask them. So they're, they're telling us explicitly, okay, this will be my reward. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell parents, sometimes we'll ask them, you know, when we're making these plans about behavior or whatever, have them tell you what, what they want their reward to be or what they want to get out of it or how they think they're going to be success, successful. And they'll even say, well, punish me if I don't do it this way. But we know punishments don't work because, again, mm-hmm. they're not con- that's not constantly right. flagged in their brain throughout all of these situations. So the, the, the answer to how do we make progress is we, we do a lot of practicing. We actually physically practice things ahead of time and, and try to build a very low kind of building blocks up of more advanced emotional regulation it's really complicated so <laughs> yeah. yeah no i see that but yeah and i guess and i guess you know i don't i don't mean to push back no please do please do to, except to say that like you know, I, again, I just wonder if like the reward structure is different in these kids, because once they can start with practice, it's like this whole idea of like, once you can learn to drive the car, um, the reward is that you get to the place that you want to be faster yeah. with less effort, right? So in this case, too, if they can, if they can practice, they can put these sequences of actions together more easily. Um, and then the reward is, you know, everyone's nice to them, or, you know, they don't have the same level of conflict. Like, I still do think that 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 is in a sense a reward for them just like no absolutely yeah and and a lot of the times they know that but they are still so unsuccessful in self-regulating those behaviors that it doesn't do anything so it only actually adds another stressor they know i'm not going to be able to drive i'm not going to be able to live with my parents anymore um Mm -hmm. You know, and again, pretty extreme trauma, mental health, and all that kind of stuff here. And, and and so I, you know, connecting with people is pretty universal. Being able to have successful, safe interactions, I would say that usually the motivators are the same, but it's just the motivator isn't much of a tool when you struggle significantly, not only with executive functioning, but also processing speed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and just it's, and they can make progress. It's just, it's really about, can we reframe, simplify, adjust a little bit instead of just holding them to the, you got to try harder, you got to try harder, which just doesn't work. Well, so I I think that actually um, maps quite nicely onto some of the ways in which uh, I I try to help my musician students, because often they say like, you know, I can see how frustrated they get when they get to the practice room because they say, I've been trying so hard or I've been doing it. And and part of it is like not understanding the steps that they need to take in order to get to do the thing that they want to do. You do with music what I try to do with everyday situations and behavior. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So yeah, give us some examples. Yeah, no, exactly. So like, you know, uh, let's say there's a singer who's supposed to sing a fast passage, I know, and she'll just say, well, I'm just not, you know, that's just not my voice type. My voice just doesn't move that way. You know, and I will say to them, well, how much time do you spend just like going between two notes quickly? Well, like no time, right? Like they don't, mm-hmm. they, they avoid the things that they think that they're not good at, right? Right. Even though that, that and, and so, and, and so if you, but if you t- say, okay, like this fast passage 
you know, in order to be able to sing this accurately and at tempo, like you're going to have to break it down into manageable steps and then practice those steps and then still put them together again. And like the, the, the practice strategy can break down at any one of those levels. Like first it might be difficult for you to know what are the steps that you need to break it down into. Then it might be harder for you to know, well, how do I practice each of those steps to get to where I need to be? And then how Mm -hmm. do I put all those steps together in a Mm -hmm. way that is consistent and effective? And I think sometimes we think like, oh, if I just learn the steps then putting it together is easy, but in fact, that can often be the most difficult part, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially, you know, if we think about this three-stage model, like it's not like you're going from associative to autonomous without any kind of effort. Like there's still, you know, you have to make that leap. and the other thing that I say to my students, too, is to not think of learning as incremental. It's not like it's this like one step in front of another will get you up the mountain. It's like a series of plateaus and then a leap and then a plateau and then a leap. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that that's that's sort of the, the power law of learning that gains happen rapidly at first and then they slow down. And then in order yeah. to make the next set of rapid gains, like you need to have some fundamental change in how you're doing the task. Yeah. Um, um, one thing, and I, I know you've talked about this before, and just my ADHD brain surviving high school, I learned randomly one day when I was doing my lines, I was really frustrated. I went to bed and the next day I remembered them all mm-hmm. and I continued to do that. So I knew like napping helps. And you've talked about that. Can you tell us why, what, what's going on with sleep and memory? Yeah. Yeah, sleep is so interesting as we learn more and more about it. And, um, you know, and I and I will plug my friend Matt Walker wrote a great book called Why We Sleep, uh, where he actually lays out some of this great research. But everything I know about sleep, I essentially learned from Matt. Um, cool. But, is it, but, but, but so there are different stages that we go through when we sleep. Um, your audience may or may not know that. Uh, at the beginning of the night, we usually spend more time in a kind of deep sleep, slow wave sleep, um, characterized by these slow brain waves that you know go across the brain. And then um, in the second half of the night, we spend more time in rapid eye movement sleep, which is usually where we think of as most of our vivid dreaming, it happens, and etc. And these different stages actually have different roles that they play in terms of learning and memory. What, 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 what we do see is that we do replay uh, aspects of both things that we learned unconsciously, so th- or through motor learning, habit learning, um, the, the you know, muscle memory, quote unquote, stuff um, in certain stages. And then we, we also repeat the cognitive, declarative, conscious learning in mm. other stages. And, and, and so the reason I mention that is because if you're, if you're sleep deprived, like you're asking your child, especially to get up earlier than they normally would, you're actually cutting off um, some of this precious REM sleep, yeah. uh, you know, which, which, which can have a, a, a sort of negative effect on their learning. But anyway, what we see is that in, I believe it's stage two sleep, what, what you can see is this replay of certain motor learning patterns whereby, um, so like there's this one study that I can tell you about where people had to learn a, on a keyboard, a, a sequence of, you know, a, a finger sequence, right? Like, you know, it's like learning to play a piece on a piano. And they found that um, during sleep, they were able to track their brain activity. And when the uh, brain was kind of replaying uh, what was happening during the day, they actually saw that the next morning, um, those individuals were able to fix the problem that they were having previously. Mm-hmm, so somehow, yeah. like, yeah, their brain was kind of working on a problem to the solution. So that's the, the, the motor learning stuff. What you're describing more is kind of like learning lyrics and, and sort of the, the declarative conscious stuff. Mm, um, okay. And that too, we see being replayed uh, in, in sleep. 
And so what essentially, yeah, I think, I think um, one of the main functions of sleep is to kind of clean up the, the, the brain so that it's ready for the next day. And that means that sometimes it, it will take away the things that are interfering with learning. So, uh, so sometimes, especially in the dream stages, we think of like dreaming to forget. Um, so mm-hmm. you forget the stuff that's irrelevant so that what stays is the important stuff. Um, when you say what stays, do you mean in terms of how we recollect the dream or just in terms of the information that's staying or going? The information. I mean, okay. yeah. So we definitely, we don't, we have no idea how well we recollect our dreams. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because, I mean, yeah, uh, I mean, probably another not half well. <laughs> hour conversation. It's, a, it's <laughs> yeah. amazing and we just don't know. But yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, but, but, but what I mean is the learning that was happening that now, Got like it. as you're describing the lyrics now that you remember, whereas during the day you were having trouble um, accessing them. And that, you know, so, so part of that is, is because it's been consolidated, right? So, so the, the majority of details are lost after uh, 24 hours, but what stays is the gist of the information or the information that we found most important, you know, we thought of as most important. Um, that sticks around and gets consolidated. And so, so sleep, sleep is incredibly important in that way. And that's one of the things I actually, you know, prescribe to my students, like, you know, if you're having trouble with a series of passages, like, yeah, definitely take a nap or, you know, go to sleep. And we, and we see that, like, even we've known since, like, 1993, Anders Ericsson's, like, seminal deliberate practice finding, which led Malcolm Gladwell to coin the 10,000 hours rule. But mm. one of the differences between the really great violinists that they were studying and the violinists who ended up being sort of mediocre is that the really great violinists napped every day. <laughs> mm. um, and so they would practice in the morning, they would take a nap, and then they would practice or perform in the evening. And so they would actually build on the knowledge. People who don't nap, you know, essentially they're not letting themselves have another learning event at the end of the day um, that has consolidated the information that they learned in the morning. What I've been seeing, I, I always get up every morning and work on the, the problem stuff that I worked on before just because I'm geeky and I like to see what's what's clicking together. Especially one thing I never really learned about properly which is kind of embarrassing is how to do multi-octave scales like so all the way up and down the piano with the correct fingering <laughs> and so now I'm doing that I'm taking time to me it's so confusing because your your hands are doing different combinations at different times they're not synced and so I'm like thinking to myself in my ADHD brain like this is not going to get learned but then I will wake up and, I'll, and I have to still go very slow and I'm just sitting there and my attention is not like it's it's my motor is taking over. You know, we talked about how it feels like. And so I'm just sitting there like laughing. Mm-hmm. I, like mm-hmm. I have no idea how this is being successful, but like my fingers are just kind of doing it and there's no like <laughs> and they're doing it. And I'm just it's just so amazing how it. Yeah. So like I, I can even be distracted in a sense, you know, from like just kind of laughing about holy cow. And but like it's still working. It's just really cool and really interesting. Yeah, there's all these like tech companies now that are trying to kind of hack this, uh, this one process and sort of create a device where like you would have some kind of cue uh, while you're practicing. And then when it when it registers that you're in the specific stage of sleep that is most effective, it will like, oh. cue your brain to wow. like go and practice that uh, because it seems so, to be so effective. Yeah. Okay. So I have two more things I want to make sure I ask you about, even though I have lots of more questions. The first is about kind of sensory. And I know that opera is not necessarily singing loud, but I remember Mm -hmm. as a kid, I I mean, I have a lot of sensory dysregulation, but as a kid, you have these behaviors that kind of helps you regulate it. Then as an adult, you you can't do these behaviors because they look weird. And for me, I'm wondering for you, if if, if you started to be into it as a kid, do you feel like there's a sensory component? Because for me, singing loud, I was always drawn to like in the Phantom of the Opera, the long, Mm -hmm. you know, where she's going up and down and really high. It just Mm. that 
that kind of stuff. And I would do it. And um, like when I was in choir, I would usually sing way too loud. And I have a lot of mm -hmm. clients who kind of do that, who have sensory dysregulation. So I'm wondering, you know, for you, do you think, well, first of all, when did you become interested in opera? And what what do you think fed it? Was it just an interest? Or was there a sensory element that you can think of? To me? Yeah, I mean, cer certainly, like the short answer to the question is like, it's totally sensory. It's it's a physical it's like, yeah, it's just one of my favorite physical sensations. Yeah, it's like it's like people who like stretching, like, <laughs> you know, it's like how it feels good to like stretch the muscles. For me, it just feels really good to sing, especially loud. <laughs> well, and for me, just I don't want to interrupt. But like when I'm doing live presentations you know if it's a big crowd they'll make me have a microphone mm -hmm. but if I can mm -hmm. I prefer just to project my voice like that's how much I like that <laughs> feeling and it, so yeah go ahead <laughs> yeah yeah and and I will say like you know a lot of people think of opera singers as just being super loud I mean you know we kind of are but mainly the, the only thing that's different between an opera singer and any other singer is that we are unamplified so you know we like the sense that you know we are in complete control of the soundscape other than the acoustics in the hall um, but that there is also no barrier between us and the audience, right? It's not mm -hmm. like, um, you know, it's, it's unfiltered sound. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, my, my mom was a choral conductor, and so she put me in choirs from the time I was really little. And um, when I was maybe like seven, I auditioned for like the number one choir in Toronto, and I totally bombed the audition and did not get in. And I found mm. it really devastating. Yeah. But there was like this, like, you know, the B choir, uh, which happened to be the Canadian Children's Opera Chorus at the time. I shouldn't probably say that because they would be like, no, we're the A choir. But, um, <laughs> but it was like, you know, where the misfits went. And uh, when I got to this choir, like, I found my people. <laughs> like, it was awesome. just. And the nice thing was, is that we were the feeder choir for the Canadian Opera Company. And so so like whenever the Canadian Opera Company needed kids like in Tosca or Madame Butterfly or whatever, they would uh, pick kids from this choir. And so I got to be on stage, you know, in, in the Canadian Opera Company productions, like the best opera company in Canada from the time I was 11. And that was just such a great, cool experience. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So for me, it is it is a very physical sensation. Yeah. And for like my ADHD, you know, as a kid, I loved opera, but I didn't like going to operas because mm. you can't see the instruments, which I love. So mm -hmm. I, I prefer going to the mm -hmm. symphony. But then also the scenes are so long, you know, this, it's like mm -hmm. it's they're not known for brevity. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it kind of sounds like as a kid, <laughs> if you were even just on stage, you're probably sat there a lot, just kind of getting used to these long songs or interludes i mean i think i think that's part of it but i also you know the first opera i was ever in was tosca which is puccini and you know i think if, if you're going to be introduced to opera puccini is, is great because okay. they're it's quick stories happen fast mm -hmm. there's no overture <laughs> okay good. You know, the minute the orchestra starts the curtain goes up there's action 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 um, and they're short. They're like two and a half hours. Like if, if I, you know, but to this day, like it's really hard for me to sit through Wagner. <laughs> like mm -hmm. when people are like, oh, we should go see Billy Budd. I'm like, oh boy. Okay. Yeah. Like four hours. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there are so many different types of operas. Now I've actually transitioned more to directing opera um, in part because I just love this whole idea of a whole vision coming to life. Mm -hmm. um, but the operas that for me are in my sweet spot are the ones that are without intermission, you know, 70 to 80 minutes long in a kind of chamber setting. Cause I just feel like it's like going to a movie um, where, but you get this kind of really immersive, intimate experience yeah. uh, that it, that where there's no barrier between you and, and the people expressing these really big emotions. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about, even though it's a big part of what you at least started doing, but you've done a lot of research on the hippocampus. And I'm just wondering if you can 
um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of describe to us what that is and just what your work was in relation to that. Sure. So the hippocampus started out as being my favorite brain region because it's the part of the brain that turns uh, essentially short-term memories into long-term memories that are mm-hmm. conscious. So it's memories for facts and events. It's it's the it's the I would say in terms of how you build your identity, if you think about your identity as being tied to how you remember your past. The hippocampus is the driver of that. And so I actually studied autobiographical memory in part because of my love for opera. I I thought that if I understood how identities are created, how we write our autobiographies, um, that can actually help me uh, develop characters and, and even, you know, bring them out on stage in a way that, you know, would be different or, or more nuanced than Mm. someone who didn't have such a in-depth knowledge about this. Um, So I, so I started looking at patients who have hippocampal damage um, and then whose memory for their childhood and other aspects of their lives, like the events that they remembered, had, had been affected by it. And then I went on to look at different subregions of the hippocampus because it's a pretty complicated structure and how that lays down these new long-term memories and, and even, even going so far as to studying patients who have electrodes implanted in the hippocampus because so the hippocampus, one of the things that it does is it pulls together different aspects of an experience. So it gets, it gets information from all your senses and it is able to sort of construct a coherent memory trace of what's happening in the moment, you know, like, let's say when you first found out or you first met the person that, you know, you fell in love with. Uh, so you can kind of remember all the different aspects of that moment because the hippocampus pulls that all together. Right. Um, and then when you're trying to re- remember it, like that's, you know, it's like, as Endel Tolving says, um, one of my mentors at U of T, time's arrow goes in one direction with only one exception. <laughs> which is our ability to remember the past. Right. And so, you know, this ability to then recreate that memory is very constructive. It happens in the moment, but it's what the hippocampus does. It like basically allows you to reactivate the parts of your brain that were initially active when you were having that experience and then kind of re-experience it in, in that way. So where what where would confabulation play a role in this process? Yeah, well, so if you don't know... So when you're doing this reconstructing, how do you know that you're actually reconstructing something that actually happened versus that you wish would have happened or that you assume would have happened or maybe could have happened? And most of us can have this meta awareness of when we're really really fabricating something versus when it seems to be driven more by, you know, some real trace that we have in our brains. But people who confabulate, um, whether it's because, you know, they have so people who uh, have had... uh, trouble with long-term alcohol use and B vitamin deficiency can can show something called Korsakoff syndrome, which I think is very rare now, although I think now there might be some evidence of, of some individuals with cancer getting anyway. So but but what essentially what's happening is that they have this disconnection between the hippocampus and another part of the brain where they're not able to distinguish real true, I mean whatever that means, because we all our memories are reconstructed memories that are based on the past from kind of an imagining and, and you know it turns out like when you're imagining the future or you're imagining a, a possible past you also use the hippocampus yeah and it does some of the same things so if you lose that conscious ability to tell those two things apart essentially that can lead to confabulation which is which is filling in gaps of memory essentially with these imaginary details without knowing it yeah your perception is it's a memory and we yeah. we all tend to trust our memory which we shouldn't do we shouldn't do yeah exactly 
so here's the question because i i'm interested in how it's like you described like through the hippo hippocampus um how the memories are stored and like it, re it remembers a sensory experience but mm -hmm. might in the moment difficulties in attention and distraction or processing speed or sensory dysregulation mm -hmm. could that interfere with the data that the hippocampus actually receives and not only that receives but also that it's able to reconstruct so i, I want to really underscore that that it's not a veridical representation of the past but rather a mm. reconstruction of it so how good those how well those details were encoded to begin with is going to affect how accurate it is and how well you're able to reconstruct it in the moment is also going yeah. to affect it so that's why, you know, when we're in a particular mood, we tend to remember mood colored aspects of the memory. Um, and every time we remember that memory, we actually change the underlying trace because right. it's this active process. So I actually like to think of the hippocampus's job isn't necessarily to lay down the past and make it available for you. It's to enable you to imagine many possible futures. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think our memories are fallible. They are, they are not good representations of the past, but I don't think that's why we have them. I think we have them so that we have this palette that we can use to construct a possible future and then figure out what the consequences of our actions might be. Yeah. Oh, like in this possible future, like if I did this, then this might happen because that's, you know, it has some relevance to what happened in my past. And, and that thought process is kind of executive functioning, working with the hippocampus, right? If totally. we're doing it consciously, if it's not. Yeah, because the hippocampus has this big, giant connection with the prefrontal cortex. <laughs> well, and I know a big part of working memory is the vis like the visuospatial sketch pad. That's mm -hmm. one of the models. Isn't that what we're you like? Is our hippocampus using that to pro project the memory? <laughs> well, so so in Badley's newest version of the working memory model, he actually has an explicit slave system that is responsible for episodic remembering. So right. going adding to the visual spatial sketch pad, adding to the phonological, phonological loop, loop is yeah. this other kind of episodic almost sketch mm -hmm. pad that is tying these things together in in time and place. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you know, the hippocampus does not act in a vacuum. It relies on working memory. Basically, basically gives working memory some information and then the working memory manipulates it. And, you know, so yeah, so a lot of that is very much tied to executive function. Yeah, because other animals have it, but just different executive function, you know, abilities or, you know, completely different evolutionary directions. But like they mm -hmm. still have the structure that kind of, I guess, gives the same information. We just perceive it differently. And yeah, yeah. and like, yeah, one of my amazing favorite... and geeky. <laughs> yeah, well, so one of my favorite, like comparative species things about the hippocampus is that there are these birds, these black capped chickadees that when food is scarce, they have to remember where they cached all their food. And in those periods of time, their hippocampus actually literally grows in volume. <laughs> oh, but they're wow. birds, and so they don't want to carry around extra weight when they have to fly. So when food is plentiful, they actually, their hippocampus shrinks. <laughs> so it's like entirely related to the way that they're using it. Wow. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time. I, you know, I, I hope my audience will enjoy it. I think it's great because we, we talk about all these skills, you know, and, and processes in just a very different context, but it's, it's really interesting. It's great to have an expert on and I thank you so much for your time. It was my pleasure. And I can't wait to now listen to your back catalog and learn many more skills of how to approach different aspects of my son's behavior. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, I have to say, hopefully this isn't an inappropriate joke, but whenever I listen to the podcast, for whatever reason, my brain has started. Whenever I hear your name, I'm like, oh, that will be a good like Latin song about like DSE Ray or something. And so, but just with your name in it, like, Indre 
Viscontes. I just, yeah. So every time <laughs> I hear it, that's like my brain plays a stupid little pretend Latin song with your name in it. So I'm like, okay. Wow, that's uh, that's unique. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 